The readings from John chapter 21, starting at verse 15 to verse 25. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have a room for these books that would be written. Here ends the reading. Uh, welcome back as we, uh, open John, uh, as we open John 21, beginning at verse 15, which we've just heard read, and we want to say thanks to the Hillsons for that as well. So let's bow our heads and we'll commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father, we want to humble ourselves before you yet again because we know you're close to the humble but far from the proud. We want to hear from you, Lord. We want to hear what you want us to hear and not be distracted. We pray, Father, you'll write your word on our hearts yet again in such a manner that, are, that they are tattooed and we cannot lose them, Father. Amen. So today's sermon I've called From Shame to Shepherd. This is a wonderful story. It's a story about restoration. It's a story of how God makes mess-ups into leaders. And I hope that may bring you some encouragement. It certainly brings me some encouragement because that's what he does. He turns mess-ups into leaders and he turns sinners into saints. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing with Peter now on some cold, sandy shore in, uh, on Galilee 2,000 years ago. So yesterday's sin does not need to be today's loss. We don't need to follow the recriminations of yesterday to stop us from going into tomorrow. And that's what Peter is uh, learning. It's what Peter is going to be doing for the rest of his life. 
So if there's a takeaway to, to um, mull upon, yesterday's sin does not need to be today's loss. Today we look at Peter's recommissioning. He'd already been commissioned once and he'd fallen away. He'd dropped the bundle, hadn't he? But so yet again, the Lord will restore him. You might like to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew 16. And I'm just going to read from verse 17 down to verse 19. So open your Bibles, please, at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, because this is where Peter is first commissioned. Starting at verse 16, sorry, not verse 17. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What a powerful commissioning he's receiving. He goes on, the Lord goes on and says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now he was given a significant amount of power that we can't even understand, significant amount of authority that we can grapple at. That's Peter's first commissioning. But in the middle of all this, he's lost something, hasn't he? He's lost his will. He got distracted, probably better, to think of him as a distracted person rather than one who's lost his will for Jesus. But he turned his back on Jesus just before Jesus was resurrected, which is before he was crucified. But what I want to say now is with Peter, likewise with us, God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. We need to hold on to those facts for the times we mess up. Or maybe you don't mess up as much as I do. I certainly hope you don't. But God's gift and God's call is irrevocable. That's Romans 11.29, where Paul is teaching about the Jews and the in, um, the gathering in of the Jewish nation yet again, because God's gifts and God's call are irrevocable. That was for the Jews 2,000 years ago. It was for Peter 2,000 years ago. And that's one of those irredeemable, um, unchangeable, sorry, one of those unchangeable verses uh, from Jeremiah that says God's laws don't change. God's ways don't change. You can pursue that in Jeremiah 33. So he's picked up in John 21, verse 15 and following, what Jeremiah talks about as well in how his ways are not changeable because God does not change. So God gives somebody a gift, they'll have that gift. God gives somebody a call, they'll have that call. They may reject the gifts, they may reject the call, but God doesn't change. Now, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about King David. King David was a man who fell very greatly in adultery and then in murder, excuse me. Now, King David would have had many reasons, to my mind, to be rejected by God for his kingship. But God does not change his mind and God did not change his call and King David went on to do great things for the Lord particularly in securing the land because that was his task. So King David messed up big time, but God's gifts and God's calling he didn't lose. So too for Peter. Peter, however, did return to his old ways very quickly. As um, 
these events are only a few days after Jesus' resurrection, is already back fishing. He's already back fishing for fish, not fishing for men. And uh, this is where Jesus picks him up in his story. We can leave Jesus. We can deny him. We can even return to our old ways. We can place him behind our back. But the good Lord will still approach us again. He won't put us behind his back. He will invite us again. He will feed us again. This is grace, isn't it? What a marvellous picture of grace. As Peter is recommissioned, as he he is elevated by the good Lord Jesus. Because is, is not grace getting what you don't deserve? And that's what's happened here for Peter. That's what happened for King David. And that's what's happened for us. That we can sit here, read God's word, listen to God's word, because he has shown grace in our lives to continue to take us forward from our mess-ups. Jesus does not hold our shame against us should we, avoid, excuse me, should we obey his voice again. Therefore, we should not hold our shame against us either. Jesus has put it behind his back. We can put it behind our back, as indeed Peter did. So Peter now stands before Jesus. I just imagine Peter standing on this, uh, this cold sand, this cold damp sand, one early morning in Galilee. I can imagine his feet were getting cold and the dying embers from the fire that the, uh, that the fish were cooked upon are just spitting at his cold feet. And Jesus questions him and he says, this questioning, he says, Jesus, uh, he says Peter, do you love me? It's not for Jesus' benefit. Jesus already knows the answer. It's for Peter's benefit. It's for Peter to get into his heart and gauge his heart and respond as he's always done previously to the good Lord, which is impulsively, but he does do it. Now, early mornings do this. Early mornings clarify the heart, don't they, as much as they clarify your troubles. You can wake up in the morning in the stillness of the hour, in the quietness of the house, in the cool of the morning, and ponder your troubles that never left you last night. Or you can get up and ponder the good Lord because you've got the distractions of the world not even started. Jesus had that habit of getting up early. Of um, He prayed all night before he appointed his disciples because the serious business with God is done in the morning, sitting up, not with your head on the pillow and your eyes closed. And it's the best time because that way Distractions are few, if there are any. So the early mornings is the time to go to the Lord as it will be his chosen time to go to you. Jesus made a habit, if you particularly read Luke's Gospel of, um, and Mark's Gospel, of getting up early and spending time with the Lord, going to the mountaintops, withdrawing with, from the crowds so that he could be with his Father and so to us. Now, Peter as I've said, was an impulsive man, but he could not resist the call of Jesus. He'll even hop out of a boat and walk on water, not considering the dangers, not considering the realities, but just wanting to be faithful and responsive to the good Lord. So we can expect Peter to be equally as impulsive in this uh, this scene as well. It was this early morning exchange where Jesus first fed Peter's body 
and then he feeds his soul. Now I'd like to read verse 15 from John 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my lambs. Now it's our early morning responses that truly matter. Is it not the only thing that matters in my, in my entire history, the place, Jesus, the place that Jesus holds in me? Is there anything else that will count on Judgment Day? Is there anything else that will count when I fall on my knees at the gates of heaven, waiting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Where does Jesus stay in you? Where is he? Because that question will be asked one day, Gee, do you love me? The place Jesus holds in me is revealed early in the morning and revealed in my answers. Now, to reflect, to reflect upon this a bit further, our love is evidenced by how much we care for our sleep and his sheep. Our love is evidenced by how much we care for our sleep and his sheep. My dear old mum would say to me, God doesn't hear prayers that um, come from under the blankets. I don't know if that's true or not. I think he probably does hear prayers from under the blankets, but there's a principle there, isn't there? That if we have something valuable, something we love to do, we'll get up early and do it. Don't lovers love to be alone? That's a Brendan Manning quote. Lovers love to be alone. No wonder Jesus wants to sit with us early in the morning because he loves us. And should we love him back, we'll be happy to get up early in the morning. I don't know how many fishermen get up early in the morning to fish because that's the best part of the day, I believe. And they'll get up in the cold wee hours and go fishing. Now, Jesus does this and he goes fishing for men. So how we handle our sleep will also be how we handle our sheep then too, won't it? Because we will be showing our care for Jesus as much as we care for those who love him and those who need him. Now, three times in this passage, Jesus clears the sheet for, um, for Peter because three times Peter denied him uh, before, uh, before Jesus was uh, crucified. And now Peter is having his shame removed. His shame is gone. Each denial is negated via each confession. Peter has been turned around so he could still pastor and feed others. So he could still pastor and feed others, teach others. Early mornings are the time for equipping. Isaiah 54, 50 verse 4. Let me read it to you. talks about the early mornings. Does not God wake us up early in the morning to teach us? Let me read it to you. Isaiah 50 verse 4. The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen as one being taught. How does, how does the believer get this knowledge? How does he get the knowledge of an instructed tongue? He gets it in the morning because the Lord wakes him up. He wakens my ear to listen as one being taught. So I can't impress more, more importantly than those early morning times with the Lord. So you can be bathed in self-recrimination 
But Jesus still loves you unto restoration. Please remember the truth that God's call and God's gifts are irrevocable. Romans 11, 29. So God, Jesus, God, they are in the, restor- in the restoration business. They are in the forgiving business. Listen for Jesus' voice. Jesus' voice will not be the voice of condemnation and it will not be the voice of accusation. Now, can I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jude, the second last book in the Bible just before Revelation. It's only got one chapter. So can I ask you to turn to Jude? I'll give you a minute to do it while I find it as well. Now, I might have mentioned this before. If I have, forgive me. If I haven't, I hope it's of great benefit to you. Jude, verse 9. Remember, Jesus comes to us to restore us, not with condemnation and not with accusation. Now, this is puzzling little verse in verse 9 of, in, in, in the book of Jude. Jude writes, Even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, there's a dispute between the archangel Gabriel and the evil one. He was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses. I'm not even going to attempt to to imagine what was happening there. But Moses was described in the Old Testament as the humblest man on the face of the earth. So I'm not quite sure what the dispute was over, but there's a dispute over the body of Moses. Now Michael, the archangel, did not bring a slanderous accusation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, in this dispute, whatever the nature of the dispute was about, the archangel Gabriel, or Michael, could have explained to Satan that he was a murderer, he was a liar, he was a thief, he was a coward, he was a warrior that had been expelled, he was rebellious, and a stack of other things he could have accused Satan of in his dispute, but he didn't. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, isn't it easy for us to find accusation and condemnation and come against people with harsh words? But we don't. We shouldn't. It's too easy to do. Because when I condemn somebody, when I accuse somebody, I'm doing the work of the evil one for him who comes to the throne of grace and accuses us day and night. That's his work, the work of accusation work of condemnation, that's not man's work. We don't treat people like that. And the archangel Michael uh, had all the reason to use it and he still did not become an accuser or a condemner. So neither should we and neither did Jesus when he's restoring Peter. So let's have a look at verses 18 to 19 in John 21. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went, before, and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said, follow me. 
Jesus explains to Peter how his response will ever change his life. And of course, history records that Peter was, was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified the way his master was. So Peter certainly did have, did receive what, was, what Jesus prophesied in those two short verses. Self-denial of my ways for his ways is what Peter was giving Jesus and what Jesus had asked Peter to give. It's the same for us. It's the same. Self-denial of my ways for his ways. But be not ignorant to the cost of the decision you make. Count the cost. The first place you count the cost is Gethsemane because you never get to resurrection if you don't get to death. We've talked about that at Easter. Count the cost, but the end result is the Lord says, follow me. And that should be keep on following me, not just follow me now, but it means to keep on following me. Let me read verses 20 to 21. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. That's John, the author of the gospel. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Amazingly, Peter gets quickly distracted. Maybe we shouldn't be amazed. Maybe it's his impulsivity. It's too easy for all of us, even at the time of devotion, to become distracted. And when you sit down to read your Bible and pray your prayers early in the morning, you're going to get two million jobs come to your mind that have to be done straight away. Be alert to that because the call is to keep focus. The call is to stay on the game that the Lord's got you on. Why? Because it blesses both Jesus, whose presence we are, we are in, and it blesses us into the future. We'll just look at verse 22. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the brothers that, his disciple, that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Jesus, <coughs> excuse me. Jesus is making a big call on Peter. But it's not a call that's any different to what he'd ask of us. You must follow me is imperative. It once again reappears in verse 22. Four points to make about those that must follow the Lord. There are no shades of grey. Being a disciple is like being pregnant, I'm told. You are or you aren't. There are no rear view mirrors to a call. We don't look over our shoulders because yesterday is gone and it was not better, but we're tempted to believe it was better. The third point in You Must Follow Me is options of flight are gone. Distractions are not worthy of the call, which is why Jesus said to Peter, that should not bother you. Just a brief aside, Fernando Cortez landed um, in Mexico and I think it was about... 1502, 1503, somewhere around then anyway. And what Hernando Cortes did with the ships he'd sailed across 
the Atlantic from Spain, what he did with them was when they landed on the beach, he burnt the ships. So all his soldiers, all his stock, his, uh, all his food was all they had and they had to make it work. There was no way of regaining their boat and going back to Spain. So when they entered in the New World, Cortes made sure that there was no turning back. That's the same with those who follow Jesus. Burn your boats, burn your bridges behind you because you are going forward. And when we must follow Jesus, we don't have competitors to him in our life. Jesus brooks, he entertains no competitors. It's all or nothing. He who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus talk in embellishments? Or does Jesus call it how it is? Does Jesus only ask for what he gave? So I wonder if you've ever prayed prayers that just don't get answered. I wonder if you've ever prayed prayers that seem no good, seem so good, but no, there's no answer received. I wonder at this point that God ignores our prayers if the prayers are actually asking him to give us what he knows will be a competitor for him in our lives. Those that pray for wealth or those that pray for fame or those that pray maybe even for a new job. Maybe it doesn't come because God knows that if he grants you your wish, you will have a competitor to him in your heart. This is the commanding instruction from the commander of the universe. Well, let's wrap up. Six quick points. You can safely return to Jesus. He is not a rejecter and he will not reject you. His gifts and his call are irrevocable. Don't forget the way past the cross starts in Gethsemane and it is the only way home. When a seed dies to itself, it can grow and reproduce. In Gethsemane, Jesus died to himself before he died on the cross. But of course now he's resurrected. Each morning Jesus has your call and your brekkie prepared. But your brekkie is going to come from here first. Bible before breakfast. You may well be chastened by recrimination, but Jesus loves you unto resurrection. We can succeed only as much as we permit him to transform us. That's a little quote I stole from Warren Wiersbe. We can succeed only as much as we permit him to transform us. And then remember, resurrection breeds resurrection. When I have re resurrected myself from my own ways into the Lord's ways, I can then teach others about the resurrection of their body and their soul. So next week, we're going to, I'm going to try to do something that I haven't done before, which is bring some reflections, some Christian reflections on the coronavirus. We did have a look at the bushfires there about three months ago in January, four months ago now. And next week's going to be a, a examining the signs of our times. So if you might like to read ahead, have a look at Matthew 24 and we'll be tackling the signs of our times next week. Let's bow our heads. I thank you, Lord, for the goodness you pour into our life. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of restoration and the God of, re uh, of um, resurrection and you're not the Lord of rejection because anyone who comes to you, you will not turn away. Lord, forgive us for those sins that we haven't asked you to forgive us for. Forgive us for those sins that still take us away from you, those treaties we have written. 
and restore us, Lord, that we too will be resurrected on the last day and bring many resurrected ones with us. Amen.